Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. Wow, it's hard to believe we're already on the eighth episode of the season. It feels like really coming to the conclusion of the series. And as much as I'm happy to see all of these questions come to an answer, I'm also so sad to see that we're going to have um, a conclusion to the series very soon. It's interesting that they're stretching out time so much because I think as our anxiety grows in, you know, hoping that we'll find out how the story gets resolved, things are really getting slowed down. So they're really making us wait for this conclusion. Yeah, this is like the longest Christmas day ever. It's almost like when you're trying to stay up over Christmas Eve and you can't uh, manage to fall asleep. Well, because by the end of this episode, it's 8 p.m. So it really has gone quite slowly. One thing I've noticed as I watched the episode, I wanted to ask if I was making too much of it, but do you notice there's a lot of signage with one or two letters missing in it? I'm actually not sure if I got up on that, but maybe if you can explain it a bit more, it would come into place. So I'm thinking, I noticed it first a couple of episodes ago at the All Safe office, where the second L is missing and then the B is missing. Oh, okay. And then at the museum later in this episode, there's some signs that are also missing one letter, and I think it's a cipher. Oh, wow. That's actually some really um, great insight. I hadn't even noticed that at all. But it wouldn't surprise me if that was some kind of Easter egg that they had snuck in and that I had overlooked. Except now I'm worried that I have to go back and rewatch every episode and count all the missing letters. <laughs> I mean, um, if we remember from that silence episode, they managed to sneak a message into the amount of letters in each sentence of the dialogue. So we know that they can be very coded at times. This episode starts with a flashback. Is this the same Elliot as last time? The little Elliot? Yeah. Yeah, little Elliot at the museum. There's something that tells us it's 1995. He's in the storage area, and I wondered if we could talk about some of the objects in the storage area for a minute. Well, one of the giant statues there feels like the um, the Iron Giants movie, which is very poignant. I think it actually might have been from around 1995, although I could be completely incorrect about that, because like, I actually haven't seen the movie. I just know that it's very sad, and then there's a giant who is iron. Um, and we also find out that um, at this point, Elliot is already speaking to another person. It's one that we can't see from our perspective. And he's kind of um, planting a message for his future self inside this um, employees-only area. So the robot, uh, its name is Electro. Electro the smoking robot. Okay. Where did you find that? Um well, so I looked it. I looked it up. I did an image search on it, um, and it was part of I think a World's Fair that was in New York, and it was created by one of the power companies. Oh wow! But I thought maybe that's part of where the Mister Robot image comes from. And later in the episode, the body's gone, and the robot's head is still there. Great points. Do you remember um, that robot that we took photos together with at the um, Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas? Oh, I do. Um, the other thing I noticed here is there are signs from a Keith Haring exhibit for the primeval future. And so I looked that up. That was a real exhibit at the Queens Museum. Um, it was held in 1990, and it was shortly after Haring died from AIDS-related complications. And Keith Haring's a very New York artist, and one reason why I thought they might have included him here, I mean, was maybe for that realism element, but also he did an awful lot of art that was reclaiming public space and a lot of subway drawings in particular. 
So I did notice that uh, Future Primeval is referenced here. Did you also notice that um, they bring back the uh, young Angela actress? Oh, yeah, because I feel like they use the same Angela each time, but a different Elliot each time. I'm, is that right? <laughs> I think so, too. So they're playing hide and seek in the museum. So this they had alluded to earlier. Um, I think they're supposed to be eight years old and they run away to the museum. And little Elliot, he's in a room. It's called the permanent storage area. And he hides something in the vault, and we'll get to know what that object is later in the episode. Right, and um, there's sort of an abrupt transition between the past Elliot's and now what we see is the present Elliot, who's still inside this room with Krista and Vera. And in this room, current Elliot can see, I've just been calling him little Elliot or baby Elliot, <laughs> like baby Yoda. He can see him, and he's really having a hard time focusing on the present, but Time's really of the essence because, of course, the hired goons are still waiting outside and Krista's really trying to get the two of them out of there safely. Hired goons. Um, but Krista, I think that um, she kind of sheds like a, a sense of normalcy into this episode where we know the series has been very fantastic and some of the um, drama that goes on is a little bit over the top. But Krista... Um, She's, she's just killed somebody, and her first reaction is to call the police. And I think that that's sort of um, the role that an actual normal person would take had they been faced in this situation. But it's not something that we normally see from characters in Mr. Robot. One public service announcement I think we should make is that you cannot, in fact, get hepatitis C from a toilet seat. <laughs> or through your pores in any way. You know, thank you for calling back to that, because I actually did want to point out that I loved the dialogue that the two henchmen had. It also brought me back to the continuous Pulp Fiction references that they have, um, because we have these two kind of hitmen who are engaging in really kind of casual dialogue that's really crude and um, really hilarious. And it gives you a bit of a sort of mundane perspective into what the life of a gangster is like. That's a really good point, because actually that whole Arby's scene kind of calls back to that quarter pounder with cheese scene. You mean a Royale with cheese? I uh, I think I mean a crusty burger with cheese. <laughs> you mean a crusty uh, gelatin with milkshake. <laughs> um, this, there's really no honor among thieves here, because they they see Vera's body and they decide that they're going to rob him before they go. And I think that's what we could kind of expect here, because Vera, he's always been very... Um, quick to kill his own henchmen. And you can see that when that goes one way, it also goes the other way. They don't respect him very much, just as he had never respected them very much. That's true. And I guess, you know, waste not, want not. <laughs> so I guess in the meantime, Krista and Elliot must have gone out the fire escape. Yeah, I think that they do kind of show us that visually when uh, Peanuts is staring out the window. I wonder if taxi drivers in New York for real see these kinds of weirdo situations, like just two really distraught people who are like, take me to the nearest police station. I'm not going to give you any further details. Oh, probably every night. And if you would judge it by Hollywood movies, then they would also be saying just like, hey, take me after that car in front of us. <laughs> so they're headed off to the police station. Next, uh, there's a cameo in this episode. And I think it had given people a lot of um, elevated expectations to see Martin Wallstrom's name in the credits. But... Tyrell's not really back in the story, is he? So I can't figure this out, to be honest. This did make me um, question myself, even as a person who has spoken to Martin and had been told by him personally that his character was dead. 
I think that he might have actually been misleading us right now. I think that this might be planting some seeds that he might show up at a later point. But just at the same time, um, they might be kind of bringing Martin back up to make us reflect upon his character. But we do need to remember that um, a character is never dead until you see them die on screen. That's something that they told us about um, Joanna Wellick. And that hasn't been confirmed from Tyrell on screen. So let's still let's leave a bit of air of history about it. I have to admit, I'm sort of a cynic about it, where I thought they're still maintaining the illusion that he's alive for the purpose of the Deus group meeting and his theoretical promotion later tonight. And so this advertisement from E Corp could have been filmed months ago. Oh, I'm sure it was still months ago, but I was kind of thinking about it from a storytelling perspective, about why would they be showing this to us right now if there wasn't a reason to bring it up again in the future. But um, as far as like the knowledge of the characters are concerned, this did all happen in the past like 12 hours. So as far as they know, um, Tyrell isn't even missing yet. It makes perfect sense that this would still be on TV. We just need to question why they make the decision to show it to us. And I do like where you're going from a storytelling perspective where sometimes even false hope is interesting. Uh, and of course, um, you know, I think we know there are an awful lot of people who miss that character. Yeah, yeah. I think that we all miss that character. Let's take a look at the DePiero's Wholesome Family Christmas. Actually, it doesn't seem like any part of it is wholesome, to be honest. <laughs> no, you don't think so? No, um... I did kind of feel like there were there was a bit of a Home Alone reference here again, where um, you remember like them spilling milk all over the table and the tickets. Right here, they're playing um, a board game, drinking cups of milk, <laughs> and um, they they kind of definitely take it a different turn from there. And it turns out those kids pretty foul mouthed in a way that I thought was hilarious. I thought that kid might be Darlene's biological son in an alternate universe. <laughs> You know, um, there was one thing that I thought was really fantastic about this scene, which is that it's, um, I think it's nearly exactly one minute, like around one minute of um, a continuous long shot, where they have um, like the camera angle and all around the living room and then following the child here into this other room where he notices the dark armies start their raid. And all of that takes place as one shot. And you can imagine that with a child actor, it, it's probably really difficult to get those shots just exactly as Esmail would like. That's a good point, actually, because it is kind of a cool way that they follow him from room to room. Yeah. And the transition they have um, into like the full volume of the music, it's also very dramatic, isn't it? It's very dramatic. And, you know, the score the last couple of episodes in particular, I think, has been very dramatic. So you do notice that here. So I also wanted to mention the lyrics of the song. They say, it's the most wonderful time of the year when your loved ones are near. And we can see that that's kind of something that comes up as a theme throughout this episode. Oh, good catch. Do you want to talk about Janice? Yeah, and there's actually so much to talk about in this scene. I mean, it starts out in um, Angela's forlorn bedroom. So it invokes those memories that we have of her, which are so sad to think about. And... Um, Janice, she starts off by talking about how cities were forged by destruction. And hilariously, she says that she found it out on the podcast, which um, my boyfriend famously jokes is how I start all of my sentences with. Every single thing I know, I found out on a podcast. <laughs> so I was just kind of like hearing a bit of myself um, in what she was saying here. And um, I also thought um, 
what he talks about is how the cities were forged through destruction because in a sort of, um, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if it's like the correct term to say, but in like a form of natural selection, over time, the um, buildings that people created that were less resistant to natural forces had to be replaced by ones that were more resistant to natural forces. And it was only through the destruction of one architecture that another one could be created. And um, I think that there are a lot of like very good and bad things to talk about that sentiment. But what it made me think of was um, the concept of um, auto-destructive art, which is kind of... Um, a 1920s concepts of art that was created through its own destruction, which were things like um, a famous monument called um, Object to be Destroyed, which was kind of like a metronome with an eye hanging on it. And eventually it was attacked by people and destroyed because they said it was an object to be destroyed, so therefore it had to be destroyed. Um, but it was kind of like talking about how art um, was capable of creating things through destroying things and that through the act of destruction you could create something just as easily that way. I really like that metaphor that you're raising because it's kind of like the way that there are certain kinds of seeds that can only sprout after a forest fire. Oh yeah, that's a really eloquent metaphor for that. Much less wordy than mine. <laughs> I uh I had to try harder because the metaphor I wrote down was how in Inspector Gadget the messages would self destruct. <laughs> I thought that was like a Mission Impossible trope. I think it was probably appropriated from that <laughs> for the children's cartoon. Um, but that's the central theme of this show, right? Five Nine was supposed to destroy the existing order so that something new and better could grow out of it. So the camera delicately pans here towards um, Dom and Darlene, and they're both tied in their chairs in a hostage situation. Janice is really doing a great job of leveraging their feelings for each other against each of them. So I was really thinking about how um, the situation that we find Dom and Darlene here compares to the situation that we found Elliot and Kristen in the last episode. They're both kind of held capture by one main antagonist and a duo of henchmen, and they exploit the relationship that they have between the two of them to one or another's advantage. Janice has a really unforgettable line here when Dom asserts that she's not a murderer and Janice reminds her that she works for a uh, occasionally uh, bloodthirsty uh, state administration. I, I like that line and it made me wonder, like, is this a hint that Janice is some kind of sovereign citizen? But also um, she works for the Dark Army. The Dark Army is a subordinate of the Chinese Secretary of Security so she works for the government just as much as Dom does, I would say. It's just a different government. Well, that's what I was trying to question, where is the Dark Army kind of a paramilitary force and Zhang is able to exploit governmental power because of the position they occupy? Or are they a government subsidiary, which is often how I think about them? I guess that's one of the main questions that they have with um, Minister Zhang that will hopefully be clarified over the rest of the season. We get a nice callback here to the 99% line from the previous episode that gets Dominique's co-worker killed. So um, Janice, that toolkit, first of all, is just terrifying and I never want to see it again. <laughs> um, she pretty swiftly stabs Dom and tells Darlene she's 99% sure that she's hit her lungs. 
that she's not 100 percent sure is she no she has not kept it 100 <laughs> as for her back though um she rolls it out exactly as she says the word dramatic and as like the microphone drops in the soundtrack that they're playing you could just kind of tell that they were playing it out and this is tended to be a horror show for the audience Darlene has been asked to give up Elliot's location in exchange for medical care for Dom. And at this point, she won't do that. And I like to think that at this point, you wouldn't give me up either. <laughs> I think that's the kindest thing anybody's ever said to me. But I think that um, I, I think that over the series and especially over the season, um, the one thing we've talked about is the idea of a dead man switch. And that's sort of... Um, a game theoretical technique where you can sort of turn something that would be fail safe or fail deadly, or in other words, like fail closed or fail open. Um, and you can kind of take that and invert the situation because um, it'd be one thing for Janice to say to Darlene that um, if you don't tell me something, I'm going to step down. It's um, it flips the circumstance backwards to say that I'm already going to step down and you telling me this is the only way I was going to save her after it. So um, in a sort of like game theoretical way, this takes all of um, Darlene's cards away and she has no choice except to fold under the pressure. Let's talk about Krista and Elliot outside the police station. Elliot is really struggling and he doesn't want to go inside with her. Um, understandable. I guess he's been up to kind of a lot of stuff lately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been uh, a pretty brutal day for him. Um, one thing, um, this analogy starts here, and it's this is going to sound nitpicky, I think. Um, but through the episode, we keep getting Elliot coming back to this idea that he should have fought back. Yeah. And they, you know, and, and we, we know how the episode resolves where he gets a feeling of satisfaction that he did. And that I think is a very common survivor guilt issue where people feel they should have fought, but, and people feel guilty that they didn't, but it's also a totally natural human reaction to, you know, it's what fight, flight or freeze. Right. So his reaction is totally normal and his guilt is totally normal. And the way they kind of resolve it just nags at me a little. Yeah, and also I feel like I should say um, this is really something I'm qualified to talk about, so I feel a little uncomfortable discussing what these experiences must be like for the people who have actually encountered with them. And um, considering over a series we've drawn some connections between Mila and Elliot, I would just like to say that that's one part that I don't necessarily identify with. But um, it seems like... Um, at this point, he does kind of blame himself and question what he could have done, which is something that people can often do um, when they're faced with those difficulties. And it's sad to see that he kind of goes through all these stages of grief where he wonders, like, what could you have done? Or um, was it my fault that this happened to me? And they um, do some kind of victim blaming toward themselves instead of realizing that it wasn't their fault to begin with. He talks about wanting to go back to the beginning. And so... This kind of tweaked something for me where I thought this is similar to White Rose's desire to rewind time or have a chance to do things over or differently. And so are they setting us up here for the big revelation that White Rose and Elliot are on the same side somehow in a future episode? I'm really curious to see how those um, storylines will come into place together because it seems like something that they do kind of dangle in front of us. 
I actually really thought we were going to get some White Rose this episode. Were you surprised that we didn't see her? Um, well, I have always been waiting for this uh, shot that came up in the trailer for this season to turn up. So every episode that comes along, I'm hoping that that scene will be in there. And that's why I was a little disappointed that it wasn't in this episode. But there was so much other um, interesting stories you wrote here that I wasn't really disappointed. This scene has nice closure, I think, where Krista expresses that she wants to continue to help Elliot and he voluntarily gives her a hug before departing with baby Elliot into the subway. And you said voluntarily hugs. I think that's something that's a really big part of the scene. We have Elliot, somebody who is known for not liking to be touched and um, we've got to understand why that is. And now he is um, reaching out to other people and he's embracing not only the physical, but the emotional connections that that represents by reaching out to Krista. When I see the scenes in Angela's apartment, I think there must be so much satisfaction in them for Domlean fans. <laughs> and I feel like that's, um, it's starting to build up, isn't it? I was a little skeptical, but now I'm, I'm really starting to get onto the Domlean train. I think Janice likes Dominique. Do you think that? I think that um, she likes her, but in a very cold and mechanical way. <laughs> Or maybe as much as she can like anyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dom is supporting Darlene's decision in this scene. So she kind of whispers to her not to disclose anything. So Dom is in fact willing to sacrifice herself. And I have to wonder, is it because she wants Darlene and her brother to be safe? Is it because she wants the hack to be carried out? Um, you know, what's Dom's motivation for that statement? Well, um, we have to remember that just at the conclusion of the last episode, Dom already was experiencing some um, suicidal gestures and asking for Darlene to kill her. So it's not really like a step too far removed for her to imagine that she would um, sacrifice herself for some purpose that she thought was better at this point. But um, I, I also was thinking like, as fantastic as an actress as um, Grace Gummer is, she really goes through like some alternations of having like the breath where she's trying to like speak through uh, words that aren't really coming through. And then a second later, she'll turn into clear, eloquent speech where she's talking to Janice or somebody else, which like um, made the acting really apparent to me. But um, overall, like I think that the, the acting is pretty good in both of those disparate roles. They just, seem not to really mix them very well. I've thought a lot about the Janice character and why I find her so compelling, even though she's so terribly evil and remorseless. Um, and she talks here, we kind of get her origin story where she had, I guess, well, they say she taxidermied animals. I don't know if that means that she killed them. Um, but that I guess her parents were kind of fearful and, had her sort of assessed and that the assessment was that she was remarkably normal. So I, I kind of take from that, that maybe evil is everywhere and that we all have the capacity to hurt others, even if we are remarkably normal. I, I did kind of have a few questions about that, but I came to a kind of similar conclusion to you. And that also made me think back to the character of Santiago, who we knew as, um, place in advice by the dark army that made him do some things that most people would think are reprehensible. So even people who can seem to be normal can be placed in unfortunate circumstances. Janice ups the ante and she's going to begin 
killing Dominique's family uh, in order to get information about Elliot's whereabouts. And I just want to say that at this point, it would be totally fine if you gave me up because this is just a trolley problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, it actually is five versus one, isn't it? It's like a perfect trolley problem. <laughs> have we have we explained the trolley problem on the show? I think most people probably are familiar with that analogy. I feel like that's one of those things that we've probably talked about in the earlier episodes, like Chekhov's gun. But maybe you could talk about it in a, a pretty quick way. And then I'll add something on after that. I think the scenario is... Or the question that's put to you is, is it more ethical if there's one person on the train track and you could divert the train to save them, but it would kill more people should you divert the train? Or am I mixing, getting it backwards? I, I think that like it's supposed to be like a quantity problem where it's like, is it better to sacrifice one person or five other people? Right. But um the kind of analogy that I've been thinking about recently is that, like, if five people have already paid their student loans, then should you forgive the student loans at or should you make other people pay after that? And I think that's a pretty similar analogy. That I would say a uh, uh, relevant <laughs> analogy. But yeah, you're exactly right. It's is it more ethical to save the greater number of people or are there other moral considerations that might render it ethical to save one person instead. When we're back at the Queen's Museum, so that big exhibit that they're always overlooking, that's a real exhibit called the Panorama, and I believe it's a scale model of New York City. I was reading what they're, they're saying. It also seems like they updated every few years to actually reflect the current skyline. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, this is a scene I find profoundly sad where Elliot is apologizing to baby Elliot for not protecting him in the past. Right. Because um, we bear in mind that Elliot is really talking to himself here and the ways that he's apologizing to baby Elliot, he's also trying to explain his own sentiments to himself in a kind of abstract way. And he's blaming himself when he doesn't really deserve to do that. It wasn't really his fault. I think that's what they're trying to tell us. When they get back into the storage room, there's that yellow beam of light and it's shining on a sign that says tomorrow. So I think that's a bit of foreshadowing for Boxing Day. Oh, wow. So I guess we will make it into the next day. Well, we got to make it all the way to January 1st, says our theory, <laughs> our one one sixteen theory. Okay. I guess we're going to need to go like half and half on that theory. <laughs> <laughs> So here we get to find out, and this had been driving me crazy the whole episode, we get to find out what Elliot had hidden in that, it looks like a vault under the vault so many years ago. Yeah, and it also kind of um, ties back all the way back to season one when we had that um, find the monster and turn the key discussion. I saw a number of people uh, on Twitter comment on, is there a significance that in Elliot's sort of you know, dreams or in the more surreal scenes of the series. Many other people had held the key. So Angela holds the key and returns it to him. And Terrell is the only person who holds the key and keeps it. Oh. I don't know if there's a parallel there with Terrell, who also says that he hated his father. Um, I'm not, I'm not clear what the connection is, but people smarter than me um, have raised the question about what's the significance of holding or keeping the key for the people around Elliot. 
I can see so many interesting connections there, and I kind of just hope that they can manage to resolve those within the remaining episodes, and that they won't remain as some kind of metaphorical interpretation for the audience to have for the foreseeable future, because um, all of those things just make me even more interested to see how all of these characters are related. This is where you can also see that robot head in the background, but not the full assembled robot. And so the head becomes part of the Mr. Robot logo. And so I wonder if that represents, if that's, you know, sort of the current embodiment of Mr. Robot versus the, you know, monster from Elliot's past. Oh, wow. There's actually a much more um, relevant uh, reference to make than I had said about the Iron Giants earlier. Although the Iron Giant is profoundly sad. So I think, you know, it's not... I'd have to watch it again. It's been a long time, but I wonder if there isn't some relation. And uh, visually, they certainly appear very similar. To me, that was one of those movies you can only see once, though. So I don't recommend that. Other other commenters online have pointed out that the key is shaped like an E. And of course, the letter E has all kinds of symbolism in the show. So Edward Elliot E Corp. It's surprisingly literal for something that had been so abstract as that dream sequence. I didn't think that it would actually end up being manifested as a key that had an E on it. Well, and I thought maybe it's being oversimplified. Like those old fashioned keys all kind of look like that. But I don't think this show has too many. Well, White Rose doesn't believe in coincidences, right? Good points. This scene, I think, really um, was challenging for me as a viewer because you do have to sit in this character's discomfort about um, their survivor guilt um, and their feelings of responsibility, which, you know, of course, the abuser is responsible for what happened. But I think it's very common for people to feel this way. So this scene, I think, is just it it um, hit me right in the feelings. Yeah. Aside from this specific subject matter, did it bring you back to the scenes between Elliot and um, Trenton's brother, Muhammad? Oh, tell me a bit more about that. Well, I was just thinking that it was the moments where, like, one person who seems to have a bit more wisdom than the other is trying to impart it on somebody else. Um, with Muhammad, it was an actual physical person. With Elliot, he's talking to um, an incorporeal version of his past self. But it just is kind of like a moment where they really... Um, have two characters alone who are not only um, discussing their feelings, but they're doing it in sort of like a one directional way, I felt. I think it is very one directional. It's, you know, current Elliot really expressing their feelings to past Elliot. I don't know if it's fair to call that an an alter, but, you know, however, you know, child Elliot is represented in this scene. Elliot is no longer with his phone And because he's headed to the museum without it, that causes a complication for Darlene, who has just given him up in hopes of saving Dom's family's lives. Right, but from Janice's perspective, she has no way to know if Darlene is bluffing or not about whether this was um, Elliot's truthful location. One line that really stings, I think, is that Dominique says she's telling the truth. I can tell when she's lying. Yeah. Which I think infers that Darlene has lied to her in the past, although, of course, we don't know what specific reference she's making. Well, I think we can kind of tell based on the interactions that they've had in the past. Um, there were a few really beautiful shots here where um, they have the camera 
pointing back and forth between Dom, Darlene, and Janice, depending on who is the focus of the conversation. They also did this way back at the um, DePero Christmas uh, Christmas dinner earlier. They had transitioned like the focus between the badmouth kid and the ants in the background, and um, it kind of like makes the visuals that you see follow the audio that you hear. And um, in a sort of similar way, like the shot here has a very gorgeous um, 360-degree camera shot. I don't think it's handheld. I think that they probably have some kind of like um, recording equipment for it. But um, they take very fast like uh, circles around the room. They record the audio from Darlene, Janice, and um, Dom on the floor. And the audio that you can hear inside your headphones does follow all of them as the camera spins around. So you feel just as disoriented as the camera is in this moment. I'll have to watch the show with headphones on one day because the experience must be different. I think that the sound is like a really huge part of it. And we've talked about how Matt Quayle, um, he brings so much to the series just through his score. But um, there's so much more like nitty gritty to it, which is how they deliver certain sounds to certain parts of your headphones, especially if you can hear it in surround sounds. And that really um, brings the scene to life. Grace Gummer and Carly Chaikin do such an incredible job, I think, of bringing the subtext to this conversation. And um, Ashley Atkinson, in an interview, said that she would sometimes step outside for scenes where the two of them were performing together to try not to absorb the energy that they both brought to it. Because, of course, she has to be the sinister person who's willing to kill both of them. But fundamentally, their performances made you want to care about those characters. Yeah, and I think that Janice... Um... We always say that characters are like normally a little good and a little bad. She does tend to be a little more bad than the other characters we've seen, but she manages to deliver all of her sinister energy with a smile, and that makes her character so much more intriguing. She tries to contact her hired goons to begin killing off the DiPieros. Hired goons. <laughs> I'm kind of, and I hear that in my head every time. Um, even though, as Dom points out, rightly, as soon as the family begins to die, she really doesn't have that leverage over Dominique that she's counting on to get this job done. So this is characterized as an all-in move. This is going to succeed or fail, but there's not going to be any in between. I could see what she was saying there, but I mean, Dom is also on the ground with a knife in her chest. It does seem like Janice still has a bit more leverage over her that she could use if it was necessary. But I like to see how Dom is able to twist the circumstance in a way that probably most people hadn't seen coming, and especially not Janice. I love that as we see the conclusion of this scene that Dom is the person who saves herself. So she's like the opposite of like a conventional kind of princess story. Like there's no one and especially, you know, it's it's not Leon saving her or not somebody else stepping in to protect her. Dom keeps herself and her family safe in a super badass scene. Yeah, and in a way they talk about how um, Dom has been stabbed. Uh, removing the knife might make her more likely to die. And um, we talk about how it's important for female characters to have agency. And in a way, Dom kind of takes control over her own life here by betting that on the line to take the actions that she does. Well, and we see, too, I think there's always in the background these little allusions to how smart and capable she is. So not only does she save herself and Darlene, she has 
arranged for her whole family's safety. And actually, this is a theory that you had a few episodes back that was correct about Deegan. Yeah, well, I, I think they were kind of like setting it up, and maybe it's my own imposter syndrome that makes me not want to admit that I came up with it. But um, it seems like Deegan, the lucky Irish bastard, does came in uh, to save a day of the ants. I'm relieved that in the previews, you would see a cell phone with blood on it, and I couldn't tell who it belonged to. So I'm relieved that it belongs to a Dark Army foot soldier and not one of the main characters. <laughs> right. And we hear what ended up happening to all of those um Dark Army soldiers, and it wasn't exactly dignified. No, and he says, sorry about your boys. <laughs> I, I like it. <laughs> it. You know, that's a real way to minimize that, Deegan. Yeah, I love the wordplay. And I also think it's funny because, like, my own name, Devlin, is also Irish-inspired, so I was thinking a bit about um, how his name made me think of mine at this time. Dom calls herself an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> which in the final act of self-sufficiency uh, and tells Darlene that she has to go. Um, Darlene's so concerned about her that she doesn't want to. But I think now Dominique is maybe even more interested in Elliot's hack succeeding than Darlene is. Yeah. She kind of took like this, um, like I, I think that sometimes we forget that Dom is able to deliver these very action-packed sequences, and that she's one of the most capable people on these series as like a trained FBI agent. I was thinking a bit about the very action-packed raid on the um, Red Barbecue restaurant in I think season two, and um, I was just thinking like, if there's any badass character on the show, it's going to be Dom. And another thing I was thinking about is that um, as you were saying. As um, Dom is talking to Darlene on her potential deathbeds, what she talks about is getting um, getting revenge and making sure that the Dark Army is taken down. We have to remember that Janice is ultimately an agent of White Rose, just in the same way that um, all these other people that we've encountered are. And um, the way that Dom dies here under sort of ambiguous circumstances, wishing that Darlene will avenge her, is very similar to the way that Tyrell had died, um, wishing that Elliot would avenge him. So this is another of those, one of those things that made me like call back and wonder if there, if Dom survives here, does that mean Tyrell survived there, or does Tyrell dying there suggest that Dom dies here, or um, are they going to have one of each of those? But I could just um, see so many comparisons between the two that I thought that they must have had similar conclusions. That's interesting because I didn't even consider that she would die. Well, I think that's, um, like, as I was talking earlier about Chekhov's gun, they they must have called the, um, like, uh, she called her boss or whatever to report that she had been shot. And they probably wouldn't do that unless there was some reason for her to be saved in the future. But they do leave it under ambiguous circumstances. And um, they're also... You could say there were some ambiguous circumstances with Tyrell as far as those like bright lights she, he was staring into. So um, I'm not really sure that her making that call is a guarantee, but it definitely does give me something to look forward to and hope that she survives. Um, I just couldn't really see past the differences between those two characters where we end the episode not knowing what happened to them. And with both of them suggesting that um, they'd be avenged and the White Rose be taken down. I think maybe it's just my optimism because Dominique DiPiero is my aspirational future self, minus the law enforcement aspect. <laughs> and with fewer cats. <laughs> I have fewer or she has fewer? <laughs> <laughs> 
She for sure. No, she would have a dog. She would have a dog. <laughs> the final scene takes place at All Safe. This is the first time I start to um, have conspiracy theories about the missing letters on the signs. And this is the first time that Mr. Robot appears in the episode. So it turns out that Mr. Robot isn't gone after that last scene that we had with Chris Sanvera. Which I'm kind of glad for because I think I do want a little bit more in terms of even closure. I think it would have felt like it was left hanging a little bit if we had never seen him again. So I think that in this discussion that they have between um, Mr. Robot and Elliot, they sort of draw a distinction that's necessary between Mr. Robot as Mr. Robot and Mr. Robot's as um, his physical manifestation as um, Edward Alderson. We begin to realize that um, Mr. Robot isn't really his dad. It's more like the idealized version that he has of um, uh, of the father that he wanted to have. And... Um, we see that um, Mr. Robot, he tells Elliot that um, could he have done anything, he would have changed things for Elliot and had things be different for him and had him not suffered this abuse. But Elliot says that, um, I, I think that he's actually kind of reluctant to accept that. I think that what he says is that if he hadn't been through all the things that he had experienced, um, then he wouldn't be the person that he was today. I actually, I find this a little disagreeable, and I'm curious um, how you feel about it, but I think that there's sometimes a trope that happens in TV shows where people who are victims of any kind of abuse kind of, um, uh, they they retroactively justify it and say that they're a better person, that they couldn't be as good a person if it wasn't something they experienced. But I think that if you were to ask anybody who actually was um, in Elliot's shoes, they probably would say that, wasn't something that they actually would want to happen. So I don't really like the characterization that sometimes happens on TV where they say that abuse can make people into a better person. I think that like um, they probably would have been just as good had they not happened. You're raising two important things for me here. And so maybe to talk about that idea. I mean, I understand that way of thinking because... It, it can't be changed. And so if you can't change something, then you're much better off to find a way to live with it and move ahead in your life. But I'm inclined to agree with you that people are the special and unique people they are in spite of the things that happen to them sometimes and not necessarily because of the things that happen to them. And that also you shouldn't be defined by things that you've survived. Yeah. This is also like something that was really criticized in the final season of Game of Thrones, in addition to all of that other criticism that was going on in that season, because there was something similar where a character arc was sort of sabotaged by somebody saying that, oh, I went through all of this and it just made me a better person at the end. And it sort of undermined all they had been through by them trying to say that it was for their own, uh, for their own betterments. It is a departure from my earlier thinking where Elliot talks about wanting to go back and change the past. And I think they're drawing a parallel to White Rose. And so his opinion on that has changed during the course of the episode. So I'm not as inclined to see that parallel between the two of them anymore. Another thing I was thinking of was um, I texted you that um, Elliot had like written a syntax error in his Python code here. And the joke that I made to you at the time was like, wow, I hope somebody got fired for that. But I think that um, what they're actually trying to show us here is that um, Elliot's state of mind is suffering. 
And actually, he's writing bad code because he's like not really able to actually carry on with this hack. And that's um, a creative decision that they're making to show that he's writing code that wouldn't actually work. I think you picked up on something important there, because if you're a viewer like me, you wouldn't pick up on it being bad code. It all code looks like code. <laughs> One line that really struck me is Mr. Robot apologizes for essentially deceiving Elliot. And he talks about how it wasn't his secret to keep. And it made me think there's this saying in, um, I think in addictions counseling, where they talk about you're only as sick as your secrets. Uh And I'm not an expert in counseling by any means, but I thought, does airing the secret and the two of them having the same level of knowledge mean that Elliot can now heal and become well? I think that's a part of it. And kind of what I'm sort of wondering is if um, the conclusion of the series will be Elliot's reconciling and becoming one with all of his alters or if in a more literal sense and um, by coming to the conclusion of all of his problems the alters will be eliminated and i don't really want to figure out like that he will go through all of this and the solution will be discarding mr robot i would like to think that they are able to become um like a, a big team at the end so you talked about how elliot is writing bad code and he's really reluctant about the hack he is really struggling. He says he doesn't think he can go forward with it. Do you think he's going to go forward with it? I think the story demands it and the show must go on. So I I don't know if um, it's going to be him who's able to overcome these difficulties that he has. If it's Mr. Robot who will push him on, or if maybe the the third alter will be the ones to do that. But um, I think that it must happen. I'm curious to see how it's going to turn out. Like every week, I'm dying to know what happens next. And I really, I really need to see, I guess, I guess the Deus group meeting must take place next episode. Oh, and you haven't seen the trailer yet, have you? No, I, oh, I should watch it. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, well, I'm so delighted that we'll finally be able to talk about this meeting and this hack next time. I think episode eight is certainly a continuation of the, um, I mean, amazing and and also challenging episodes that we've seen this season. And so looking forward to next week's episode. And finally, it's not the climax of the story, I don't think, but finally getting to see some uh, movement on the White Rose storyline. I'm so looking forward to that myself. Thank you so very much for listening today. Uh, We are Mr. Rewatch. You can find us on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Rewatch. We will be back with you next episode. Bonsoir.